This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bobink. Welcome to another exciting episode of Bobcast. I am Andrew Smith. And I'm Caleb Castro. We're coming back this week to the wonderful works of God, Herman Bovink's popular level book on systematic theology, just released in a new edition earlier this year by Westminster Seminary Press. We've been slowly working our way through this book, learning a lot, finding out a lot of interesting things about Bob Inc., about theology, about Revelation, and we've really enjoyed going through thus far. And we are currently in Chapter 6. We are on page 69, talking about the law, talking about the covenant with Moses. Let's dive in. Now, Bob Inc., going on from page 69 to 70, he'd just been speaking of the love for neighbor in comparison of Jesus' teaching regarding divorce. At the end of that page there in 69, the last sentence, Bob Inc. says, This love proves to be such a mercy to, page 70, to the weak and oppressed, to the poor, the strangers, the widows, the orphans, to men servants and maidservants, to the deaf, the blind, the aged, and the like as no other law of antiquity knows it. So Bobbing points out that there is, uh, in, in ties with the moral law and the commandment of loving the neighbor, for national Israel, in the civil law as well, to care for the weak and the oppressed and the poor and the strangers, the widows, the orphans, and so on and so forth, to care for those of their society. Now, I mean, what do you do, say, in this day or age? You know, should the government go and take on those roles and functions to care for the weak and the oppressed, the poor, the strangers, the widows, the orphans, men servants and maid servants, the deaf, the blind, the aged? And to what extent? If we want to draw examples from the Mosaic Law, we have to realize it was not the government that was doing these things. These were laws primarily pertaining to relationships between individuals. And then if there was further conflicts between individuals, there was judges and stuff to arbitrate these matters. Israel was no welfare state. There wasn't like any kind of social program. Right, yeah. There wasn't any kind of redistribution of wealth or anything like that. It was just people were expected to act benevolently towards one another. For instance, they would leave part of their crop in the fields so that the poor could glean. You see this on display in the book of Ruth. Um, other examples, things like the year of Jubilee where or sabbatical years where slaves would be released, where property ownership would revert back to previous owners. This idea that... There were things built into the law to prevent oppression and to deal with oppression, but largely the burden was placed on the individuals within the community to carry out these things as they relate to one another. So going back to our theonomy friends there, to what extent might this be able to be enforced or applied in a present-day sense? Well, in a theonomy sense, we have a real problem because, like, for instance, we don't have tribal allotments of lands in the United States to the people that, you know, live in and control the United States. So who gets the land every 50 years then? It's a strange discontinuity here if we were to take that approach. 
Or what do we do about the issue of slavery? I mean, we don't have slavery anymore. Do we need to go back to slavery and have a slave economy so that we can hold to these proper laws concerning slavery? Bob is making the point with this in saying that uh, there at the last sentence of that top paragraph on page 70, Israel's moral code was written from the viewpoint of the oppressed. Israel themselves never forgot that they had been a stranger and a servant, bond servants in Egypt. The basis of this law in its moral aspect derives from the total religious covenant relationship with God. And moreover, uh, it also has a holy aspect to it. Uh, So this care for the oppressed, the love of one neighbor, has one's holiness set apart from sin in mind. And that's applied in various ways. So that's where we see this caring for the oppressed. You're supposed to love God first and foremost, but you're also supposed to love your neighbor and you're supposed to look out for your neighbor's welfare, not through social programs or coercive means or anything of that but just you know treat each other well and don't take advantage of each other don't oppress each other don't use each other for ill-gotten gain things like that and this wasn't merely because of the the common social relationship they had as as being people of the same country and nation it also had in mind them being in covenantal fellowship with one another because of who they were in god as a holy people. And so this required for them to act in love and in righteousness with their neighbor. And here we have the uh, third characteristic of the law that Bobby points out. And he makes an interesting note, second sentence of that second paragraph on page 70. He says, there is no law of which memory remains from antiquity, which conceives of sin so deeply and profoundly as sin. There was an awareness of offenses against God. He gives the various designations that the Old Testament refers to these sins as covenant people of God. Bobby says uh, it's called uh, offense, guilt, falling away, and rebellion. And then it always boils down to being sin committed against God, against the God that they are in covenant fellowship with. And this introduces this category, which comes back in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings, of transgression, which is covenant breaking, sin against God's law, sin against God's covenant with them. Because at the end of the day, these laws, they're not merely holding the people accountable to one another. It's not like, you know, national laws we have now, where if I go and break the laws of the state of California, I'm guilty to the state of California. Here are things where you might commit an act against your fellow man or against property or whatever, but in doing so, you are guilty before God because you have violated his covenant. Not just even in the sense of, say, breaking a civil law as a, as a criminal, but even uh, morally, right? We have unclean thoughts pop in our heads all the time. Unrighteous qualities, uh, impatience and frustration, anger, you know, lust, even when we don't commit it. All these things and more are sins that store up God's wrath against man. And, you know, this is not even then to speak of uh, original sin, that, that inherited sinful nature that we have at birth. So we just add sin upon sin upon sin upon ourselves throughout our lives. Now, when someone is in a covenant relationship with the Lord, there's a whole nother issue. Right. And I think one of the things in our day that makes it difficult for us to grasp this and understand this is we often don't grasp the seriousness of sin Something that the people of Israel had that we didn't is they went to Mount Sinai, they 
They heard the sounds. They saw the sights of God coming in terror on the mountain. It is not that God is any less that now. They saw it. We know it. We have it recorded for us in scripture. But I don't think we often think about just how serious our sin is, even like those sins of mere thoughts that you described a little bit ago. Those are sins, and those are transgressions of God's covenant. Those are the things for which the wrath of God is kindled. They're enormous things. And, you know, us as covenant people of God, us as Christians and believers uh, should know better. Hearing the law, well, for us in our Reformed uh, Presbyterian circles, we hear uh, the law read out every single week as part of our liturgy before going and having the pronouncement of the gospel, the forgiveness and assurance that we have in Christ before we go into the sermon. We hear this law spoken out to us as if we were standing at the base of Sinai ourselves you know, we don't see the flashings of uh, lightning and the roaring of thunder over our heads. You know, we're not crying out for the pastor, go up to the mountain and mediate for us lest we die. We kind of get tired of hearing the law a lot. We kind of forget its significance. And yet, as you're saying, in our day and age, we don't think of the little sins as being as offensive to God as, say, murder. Me getting frustrated and lashing out at my wife is enough to condemn me as it is outside of uh, the covering of Christ as my mediator. And Bavink gets at that at the end of the first full paragraph on page 70. Yes, there is sin. Yes, there are these transgressions. There is forgiveness for those sins, but this is important to note here. He says, but not in the sense that Israel is to achieve this forgiveness by its good works or by its sacrifices. For the forgiveness comes by the promise. It is a benefaction not of the law, but of the gospel. It is not earned by sacrifices, but it is received in childlike humility through faith. The law is useful in that it shows us sin, but the law cannot deliver us from sin. Through the law, as we've been talking about, we can only pile sin upon sin, transgression upon transgression, guilt upon guilt. It is through the promise, it is through the gospel, it is through the work of Christ that there is forgiveness of sins, which is why in our liturgies we do both. We have the law, but then we have the gospel. We have the promise that in Christ our sins are forgiven, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's a powerful thing. And I think Bobbing is showing here, uh, especially in that next paragraph, that I mean, the, the law in no way goes away with Christ coming, but rather for those who are in Christ, forgiven by his blood, who are regenerated and uh, have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the law still speaks to us of how we are to walk in obedience, the way of the Lord, how to walk no longer in foolishness and darkness, in the ignorance of our fallen state, but now as those who live in wisdom. The law is essentially wisdom. And not only that, but I mean, if Christ has done this great thing for us, why would we want to follow in the ways of sin and the ways of death? We know better now. We know what's over there. Well, yeah, and yet at the same time, we keep sinning. And so, I mean, how much more is our sin heightened? Especially us who have professed Christ, who are in covenant with him, who go to church week in, week out, read our Bibles, have the law read out to us, us, we take notes in the sermons, and yet we sin, and we keep sinning day after day, moment by moment. How much more than is the seriousness of us who abide in sin, continue to abide in sin, in having Christ proclaimed to us? To put it in Paul's words, shall we sin so that grace may abound, may it never be. If we 
know the truth about our sin, if we know the salvation that is Christ, we should not desire to sin. First John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, this isn't saying that we justify ourselves through our works, but what it is saying is that if we are in Christ, then we strive out of gratitude, we strive in joy, we strive in faith to live a life that is pleasing to God. We don't use it as a license to go and sin more. Yeah, and, and this is even uh, explained even further from 1 John 3, uh, 23. You know, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And yeah, and so we see that from here in First John that keeping the commandments comes first and foremost through belief in Jesus Christ. And the keeping of the commandments, obeying the way of the Lord, walking in wisdom, these things are done out of gratitude. They're evidences of fruit that the Holy Spirit who dwells in us is growing in us. But now these commandments were the same ones that were given to Israel. You know, we sum them up from Matthew 22, 37 and 38. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, these are the same things that were spoken to Israel. Well, now, I mean, how does the law then function in this way when Christ has not yet come? The fourth and final characteristic that Bob Inc. brings out about the law, this one beginning on the top of page 71, is that the Mosaic law is a law of liberty. It assumes and grants a large measure of freedom. Now, we see this work out here in a few different ways that Bob Inc. points out. He says that the people voluntarily acquiesce to this law. They don't resist it. They don't fight it. They don't turn it away. They want to... Because of God's covenant with his people, because of what God has done for them, they want to follow it. They want to go along with it. That's an interesting thing, too. Bob Inc. is pointing this out, this uh, voluntary acquiescence. You know, we're reformful. Bob Inc.'s reformed. Uh, he's a reformed theologian. Oftentimes, we talk about uh, irresistible grace. We talk about how the Lord, uh, I mean, in his sovereignty, is calling and bringing people to himself. A lot of times, this sounds like, uh, you know, determinism. That there's absolutely no concept of free will or the will of man in the equation of salvation, in the equation of God bringing about redemption for his people. Bob Inc. is giving a treatment here of saying that the law has an aspect of liberty in it itself. The people who are covenanted with the Lord are agreeing to walk in the ways of the Lord. Mm -hmm. He's not going and holding this very law over their head and binding them to it because he delivered them. You know, he's going and saying, well, I delivered you. And here is how you show gratitude as a people. This is how you walk in my way. This is how you grow in the knowledge of me. They're presented with this option to come forth. But another interesting thing that Bobbing treats in this section is that the law, when it comes, it doesn't infringe on any existing rights or existing institutions. Like he talks about how the people of Israel were already organized, especially he talks about the family unit. He talks about the genealogical subdivisions, the households, the generations, the tribes, the patriarchal organization the heads of families in this regard. 
God doesn't change that. He doesn't modify that. He maintains that. That continues. Bovink has a really interesting discussion in the last paragraph of page 71 about how are men viewed and how does that result in the view of women. And this is a topic we may take up in a later episode, a later Bovink on, uh, looking at Bovink's view of gender roles. Uh, But for now, suffice to say here, he talks about this question of whether men were viewed as members of the family, like husband, son, or brother, which in Israel they very much were, or as if they were primarily a citizen or a warrior, which was more the Greek or Roman approach. And the result, if you go with the latter, then women are pushed back and regarded as inferior. But in Israel, in this patriarchal system, the man is first a member of his family, and thus his first task was to care for his family. And this is why, for instance, in the Mosaic Law, you see things like exemptions for military service for someone who has just married, things like that. The family unit is held in high regard, and then the husband, the father, is given responsibility over his family. Yeah, so all this to say, I think it's fascinating that Bobbing brings us out in such a, uh, I mean, it's in the space of a single page here. I mean, he's essentially saying that the liberty that comes from the law and the knowledge of the law is a liberty that frees, restores, and reorders the relationship with God, with uh, authority in the society around us. It restores uh, order and relationship in the household, in, in marriage, uh, and with others, generally. You know, he's not merely just pointing out uh, grace as being the basis of this. These people have been delivered, they've been ransomed, they've been redeemed, uh, and they're in covenant with the Lord. But he's saying it's the law of walking in the ways of the Lord in obedience to him, in his standard of righteousness and holiness that frees up relationships and restores uh, essentially the created order. This restores relationship with one another. It heals the divides between God and man and man and man. There's the loving God, but there's also the loving of neighbor. But I think it's also, Bavink provides some valuable perspective in an age that is very confused on these things. Note that when God is setting up more or less a nation... The nation's not infringing upon the family. The nation is not despising the family. It's not looking down upon the family. It's recognizing the importance of the family. And this is important in our day because, I mean, we have movements, for instance, that are gaining influence in our society now that are openly hostile to this kind of familial structure. They... Uh, would denounce it as patriarchal. They would den- they would denounce it as oppressive. They would denounce it as antiquated and outdated. But in reality, what this is is it's meant to protect. It's meant to provide. To borrow a term that so many use so often, is to provide human flourishing. Is to provide the opportunity for life, for growth, for safety, for protection to all those within the covenant community. And that's very much what uh, Bob Inc. even then gets at on the next section, starting on the next page. The system that National Israel had generally was already institutionalized, uh, was already in some form organized prior to the giving of the law. And yet the law at Sinai and the statutes and prescriptions ultimately aimed to uphold these things, to tighten them, to develop them, to protect the 
form of their national government and the government's relationship with the priesthood uh, as well as the monarchy. You know, each area of national Israel's life had its own place and was kept in its own lane and only overlapped where God had properly prescribed. And so because we have these separate lanes, these uh, particular realms of authority that each of these institutions are given we see that work out not just in the families and in the legal system but it also comes up in the priesthood it also comes up in the monarchy when that becomes a thing Uh, if you look at the second paragraph on page 72 we see for instance that israel's king once they get a king And it was even built into the law, even in Deuteronomy 17, that someday, if you have a king, he was not to be a king like the nations. He wasn't to be one that was accumulating his own possessions, accumulating many wives, accumulating many horses. You know, in this part of history, if you're a king, like, isn't that why you want to be a king? Isn't that what being a king is all about? But for Israel, it's not so. The king has a particular task, a particular function, and the king has to recognize that he sits under God's ultimate authority. And so, for instance, their kings were supposed to write out and learn for themselves God's law. And that same passage uh, notes that the Levites, the priests, were supposed to uh, also take a look at that copy of the law that he wrote out and and give the okay. You know, I mean, they they, they were basically overseeing the word uh, and commandments of the Lord. The king couldn't just go and alter it as he saw fit. And we see that when kings try to do that, when they stray from the law of God, there are consequences. It is for idolatry. Um, It is for the various transgressions of the kings that Israel ultimately goes into exile. Well, and likewise, even when the priesthood and the Levites became corrupt, when you had a righteous king, such as Josiah in um, 2 Kings 23, Josiah would go in either exile priests that mixed Yahweh worship with the foreign gods, or in the northern uh, former kingdom in Samaria, Josiah went and put the false priests to death. Right. There was a regulation between the uh, the various areas. Sort of a system of checks and balances, if you will. You see, for instance, another instance in Second Kings chapter 11, when the evil queen mother, Athaliah, wrests control of the kingdom uh, from the Davidic line of kings, the priests hide away Joash, the son of Ahaziah, the last living heir of David's throne. They hide him away from the queen. The priests essentially preserve proper government and allow it to continue so again you kind of have these various institutions because they're not hierarchical because they have their own sort of independence and their own sort of authority more or less keeping tabs on one another and holding each other accountable well yeah and same thing where even then the ward also had uh, the elders uh, the heads of the various tribes the judges uh, that also had to be checked with uh, and oftentimes prophets were also consulted with all these various things the lord has given a prescription for how israel uh, is to function but all along the lord is the ultimate one uh, god is the king the very lawgiver and the judge of israel as bobbing says it's the Lord who's giving the ultimate pronouncements, uh, who's going and directing the ways of this kingdom. But with that, we've come to the end of our time for this week's Bobcast. 
We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you've learned something. As always, make sure to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media for the latest news and updates, and share Bobcast with your family and friends. Let them know what we're doing here. We always appreciate the support and the sharing of our listeners. We'll be back next week with one more episode from Wonderful Works of God. That will actually be our final episode for this year, for 2020. We'll be taking some time off for the holidays and to get ready for some new and exciting content and guests and other things for the new year. So join us next week for our season finale of Bobcast. And until then, Toadzines. Toadzines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.